continuing story of Max Landis, episode six. We're talking about Mr. Wright, one of the, is it four Max Landis movies that came out in 2015? That's it's right. three or four. It's four. Four. God damn, man. Has <laughs> anyone, no one's had as good of a year as Max Landis did in 2015. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with the Mary Sue stuff, like, God damn. That's, that is fucking insane. Four movies, and uh, they're of a, shall we say, variable quality. But still, man, that that many irons in the fire at once. That's a, uh, gotta give it, gotta give them props. It's rare. Not since like you know old Hollywood when people wrote like a hundred scripts a day. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone had this many movies out in theaters at one time. Yeah, no, it, it is a real throwback to the, the days when they had people chained to desks like the 100 Monkeys at 100 Typewriters <laughs> and fed them 1930s Adderall and made them write 100 movies called, like, The Dame That Was Shaken. No, the uh, <laughs> Mr. this is Mr. Wright. We're talking about uh, the third of these movies. And Mr. Wright is... It's becoming increasingly clear to me that... Getting a hold of Max Landis's distinct voice as a screenwriter is, it's both becoming clearer and more nebulous because, like, it, unlike the Doug movies, which, you know, Doug's a real triple threat. He writes, directs, and produces all of his shit. Mm-hmm. Max, you know, Max has his vision filtered through studio stuff and then through a different director. So, like, as, as we're able to, like, suss out stamps on what he's doing, like, it, it's also, like, it's getting almost more like opaque what is happening with his vision. Like what, wh- who is Max Landis is becoming harder and harder for me to nail down as the show goes on, aside from a raging narcissist. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I agree. No, it's like, I, I think as we sort of, the more stuff of his we watch, I get the sense that like, he is just sort of taking from so many different things that like he there i don't know if there's a person under there anymore you know what i mean like yeah you know like this movie is so self-consciously a fucking like you know 90s hitman comedy pulp fiction ripoff basically um it is so much that and it's like i i don't know what what am i where, where is the auteur max landis in all this i'm not sure where to where to find him except maybe in his like um very obvious fetish for women who act like uh, children. Yeah, I mean, yeah the the one thing the one through line between all of these projects is uh, the shrill woman, the very very <laughs> shrill, obnoxious, half motherly, half childlike love interests in all these movies. But mm-hmm. no, he, I'm going to get like killed on the streets for making this comparison. But whatever, I don't care anymore. Um, a friend of mine uh, once told me that she was convinced that Steven Soderbergh is not a real person, but instead a pseudonym that is adopted whenever there's a studio project that they just want to, you know, toss to someone. <laughs> Obviously, that's, you know, stupid. But at the same time, I get it because, like, Steven Soderbergh makes, like, 90 movies a year. Only one of them is watchable. And, like, they're all about completely different things. And any any attempts to suss out what his interests are is just, like... It feels like the law of averages at this point. Like, if you make so many movies, of course there's going to be, like, some recurring trends here and there. And I I feel the same way. Obviously, Max Landis is a a lesser director than Steven Soderbergh. I will grant the Soderbergh heads that. But um, it it, it feels like he has just absorbed, like you said, absorbed so many uh, disparate influences and 
stylistic ticks and interests and it being filtered through so many different directors isn't helping but like there are screenwriters that you can get like a hold on even if they only do studio gigs whereas with max it's like I don't know. I, I went into this season expecting for us to really get a handle on who this guy was other than the, you know, pompous douchebag we all assumed him to be. And I think I understand him less now. He's, he's <laughs> truly mysterious in a way that some of the people we've talked about aren't. So yeah. I don't know. This is going to be a challenge. Well, that being said, though, we should preface this by saying that this movie, Mr. Right, is basically the same movie as American Ultra. <laughs> it's, yeah. Like, if you had told me that this was like the first draft of American Ultra and he just accidentally sold both of them to different production companies, I would believe yeah. you. Because it's basically like, you know, there's the guy who's like kind of quirky, but he's like an ma- expert assassin and he can do all kinds of kung fu shit. And then the girl who's like, you know, uh, shrill and annoying um, who's with him. Um, and, you know, there's even, they've been fucking referenced the, amusingly, on the IMDb trivia for this film, they think that a reference that they make to the CIA Ultra program is a reference uh, to American Ultra, and that that indicates yep. that they take place in the same universe. Um, yep, it's really got the Tarantino thing going here. It's really, really like the every review of this on Letterboxd from the time points out how this is one of those like movies like things to do in Denver when you're dead. One of those classic mm-hmm. Tarantino knockoffs that came out in the wake of Pulp Fiction. Yep, and. It's an apt comparison. This really, really does feel like a spec script uh, a 19-year-old at NYU would have written after getting his mind blown by Pulp Fiction. And it, uh, yeah, it's that. And it is also very similar to American Ultra. It swaps, you know, uh, rather than him being like, you know, an MK Ultra victim who's kind of on the run, they have a, a hitman who is killing a bunch of people and is also on the run. So it, it is a... You know, there's a slight deviations within the formula there, but no, they are very, very fucking similar. Also, the the love interest in this movie, rather than being played by a barred out Kristen Stewart, is played by an infuriatingly hyperactive Anna Kendrick. Like, I, yeah. Look, Anna, I don't know if this is her fault. It could be Max's fault for the script. It could be the director's fault. It could be hers. It's one of the most annoying performances I've ever seen in something. Like, I do not want to hear shit about the kids in War of the Worlds or whatever after this. It is like, yeah. God damn, man. I needed to I needed to take a nap after watching her performance. <laughs> it's bad. It's it's really like it is so and you know, I like I said, this is a character who uh acts like a child. She acts like she is uh, 11 years old at all times, but that it's supposed to be like, you know, quirky and admirable. Um it's very like, you know, Tumblr girl of the era. She wears cat ears and like t-shirts with unicorns on them. Um yep. that kind of shit. And she talks about how she wants to be a T Rex. Yeah, she's <laughs> she a real glompsy you type bitch. She's yeah, a, she's she is a... she is gonna fucking glomp you. Um Yeah, she is a real touch my butt and feed me pizza type girl. Like they they, they <laughs> made did, a whole yeah. movie about that. <laughs> she she baked you cookies, but she eated them. Um yeah, no, this is she, the kind she... of girl we're talking about. <laughs> yeah no it, it's it's a it, it's a very specific archetype of hot nerd girl that went the way of the dodo after gamergate so <laughs> it, it is a it, it, it's a, it's one of the most just noxious fucking performances and it's thrown into even sharper contrast by i'm gonna lay down a controversial claim here sam rockwell who i'm not normally a huge fan of surprisingly having a lot of fun here 
pretty charismatic, honestly. That's it's that's he- my that's my weakness. <laughs> I'm gonna admit. He seems like he's really enjoying being able to play a cool guy, which he doesn't always have the opportunity to do in a lot of his roles. Yep, he he is he is having a very fun time. He's getting to show off some of his, you know, kind of natural like you know charisma, and he more or less like hard carries this fucking movie. Like yeah. everything that is worthwhile about this movie, and I also got to admit didn't hate this like I was expecting to. I preferred it significantly to American Ultra, and I found it uh, not good, but, like, it wasn't painful at all. It just felt like, you know, I was watching a movie at a sleepover when I was, like, 16 or something. And he he is the reason why this is good, which is so funny since, you know, in the past 10 years, some of the most wretched performances in film history have been turned in by Sam Rockwell. <laughs> like some of the worst, most just tone deaf and irritating. Specifically, the two obvious ones are the uh, the epic gay Nazi in Jojo Rabbit and the uh, the uh, the racist cop with a heart of gold in Three Billboards. Yeah. He he has which like, was his he, next film after Mister Right, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, he has um. <laughs> he has like two faces on the Mount Rushmore of offensive performances in the 2010s up there with fucking Eddie Redmayne and the Danish girl. <laughs> and yet, and yet, he is having a ton of fun here. He is basically the reason why this to me was not the worst time ever. This was a perfectly serviceable Tarantino knockoff, which was unfortunately kind of stymied by some Landis isms. Yeah, I I mean, I was like, I was hating it for a while. Um, I think once the movie sidelines the Anna Kendrick character, like, first of all, hilarious that it does that because she does seem to be the main character at the beginning. And then she just sort of like isn't in the movie for a while. Or Which, thank like, God. Is like in the background while Sam Rockwell thank is doing Hitman God, shit. Man. Yeah, it saves the movie, kind of. I mean, it's yeah. still really bad, I think. But it like, it makes it a lot more watchable when you're just watching him do, you know, like... Uh, slow-mo John Wick shit and like quip with people then you're watching her do the shit she's doing which I also have to say the action in this movie it is still kind of like cut to shreds in places but it's not quite as dire as American Ultra where American Ultra it was like shot with someone with a concussion where this one's just the standard kind of 2010s all right we're gonna stitch together a bunch of coverage and see if we can make it coherent which yeah step up baby steps baby steps (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah, no, but I will say, Esther, I was at the beginning. It is it, it it starts off on the wrong, wrong fucking foot. <laughs> like yeah. the 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 if people decided they flat hated this movie, that it was the worst movie they ever saw based on the first like ten minutes of it, it I wouldn't blame them because it kind of slaps you in the fucking face. Which it starts with um starts with Anna Kendrick. And it starts with her preparing dinner for her current boyfriend, uh, soundtrack to uh, Megan Trainer. Yeah, which, dear, uh, dear future husband. Huge hit yeah. at the time. Huge, yep, yeah. I also have to say, was the was the soundtrack supervisor for this movie like 14 years old? Because it has like, <laughs> it's, it's a mix of stuff that was big in 2015 and music that you would have heard from other movies. Like, yeah. they, have the scene, they have the scene where... Um, they have the scene where Sam Rockwell is like doing epic ninja dancing while killing someone, and the song they choose is "Spirit in the Sky." Yeah, and it's like, 
That that song should be in the public domain by now. Like it's, it's been it's been in every yeah. fucking movie. They saw well, they saw fucking Guardians of the Galaxy, and they were like, "All right, we got to get a little bit of this fucking magic in in our movie." Yeah, and Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of a shitty soundtrack too. But at least they chose songs that hadn't been beaten to the fucking ground. Like, what you got any Fortunate Son or All Along the Watchtower ready for us, man? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, the, uh, they also, specifically why I said, uh, it's from other movies is because they use a very, very specific needle drop from Boogie Nights in this, like a song that (laughs) only appeared in Boogie Nights and then nowhere else. It's this like disco remix of Bach that plays in Boogie Nights. And I was like, what, why, man, (laughs) what's happening? Yeah, that's why I say it. it's like a 15-year-old made it. Because when you're 15 years old, you think Boogie Nights and its soundtrack is the coolest thing in the world. So you're just like, all right, I got to do the exact same thing. Maybe I'll I'll pilfer a few uh, a few of their um, needle drops as well. It's, ah, uh, God, man, it, it's, yeah. it's dire. But what really makes it dire is the fact that Anna Kendrick is like jumping around all hyper-like and saying, oh, man, I think direct quote, she says, yeah, my boobs look like a butt right now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> she's she's like she's doing that at one point she does that thing where she makes like epic five-year-old pancakes or something and she's like squirting like whipped cream and hershey's sauce into the pan <laughs> yeah she's like sitting in the closet and pouting and like throwing a temper tantrum it's yeah god damn it's, man, it's, it's hard stuff. to describe i mean i think from our description you probably have an image of what this kind of person is um but it's 90 minutes of this uh it's really really rough yeah, no, she, she, yeah, again, it's, it's made a lot more tolerable by the fact that she, because Max Landis is a sexist and God bless him for that, <laughs> sidelines her in her own fucking movie. Yeah. But it's like it, the, it, the, every time she's on screen, like the, the watchability of the movie drops down by like three or four standard deviations and it, it becomes something of a chore to sit through her performance. But uh, other than that, uh, most of the movie follows this template, which is um, it's like a Tarantino knockoff and it's spliced in between is like 500 days of summer, basically. <laughs> basically, yeah. In um, fact, the the spirit in the sky needle drop made me realize more than Tarantino what this movie is trying to be. I don't know if you've seen this movie, Esther, but it is trying to be this movie from the 90s called uh, Gross Point Blank, which is this movie mm. about a hitman who comes back to his high school reunion and falls in love with a girl. But in that movie, the girl, when she learns he's a hitman, is freaked the fuck out. Where in this one, she's freaked out at first, but then is like, oh, wait, that's actually kind of badass. I'm going to get in on it, too. And I know what Max Landis's exact fucking thought process was here. He saw that movie. His dad, you know, in one of his fucking Epstein compounds made Max watch that movie. And then Max was like, this would be so much cooler if the girl was a hitman too if she did some uh ripley from alien shit and so yep. he rewrote gross point blank to have a badass woman and yeah and here we are and in the way he does this is he gives her like magic hitman powers um mm-hmm. like there's a bit where um sam rockwell is like he can sort of like sense that she has the ability to, he describes some weird stupid fucking thing like power he has so that explains why he can do John Wick stuff. So he just starts throwing knives at her and she just like reflexively catches them. 
um, yep. which does not come up again until the end of the movie when she has to kill a guy. Um, yeah. Like, it's not like the movie is about her, like, awakening to this bizarre, unexplained uh, psychic ability. It's just sort of, like, established. You know, it treats it like, you know, it's a, the fucking Chekhov's gun is that she has magic powers, basically. Yep, and then they immediately drop it. Most of the movie is just... Sam Rockwell, you know, walking her around on a fucking dog leash and then fighting like a bunch of bad guys played by character actors. And then, you know, at the very end, she kills a few of the bad guys using her magic assassin powers. And that's about it. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the uh, visual style of this movie first, (laughs) because uh, (laughs) uh, someone was watching some fucking Edgar Wright movies. Oh, yeah. Someone. (laughs) The director's name is uh, Paco Cabezas, who... I can't say I'm familiar with. He, uh, no. he, let's see, in the years since, he has racked up some credits on Fear the Walking Dead and uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Oh, which so is we'll talk Max about Lannister. him later this season. Yeah, we'll, we'll, get a, uh, we'll get a better grip on him later. Before this, he directed a Nicolas Cage movie called Rage, which <laughs> I uh, got confused with the Brad Pitt war movie named Rage. No, mm-hmm. that's Fury. That's Fury. Yeah. God damn, man. I hate I hate <laughs> I hate talking about these middle brow yeah. movies, man. Nicolas Cage made, I think, five different movies called Rage in the two in the twenty tens. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Um he was a writer on a movie called Bon Appetit, which is a, a romantic drama. So you know, not a clear auteur stamp yet, but what I can uh, sense here... He also wrote um, a movie called Spanish Movie, which is sort of like... It's like it's like scary movie, no! but it's like no! just, for, just for Spanish movies. <laughs> that's hilarious, man. That's yeah, actually, that's, that's awesome. That's a great... That's like someone who was making fun of epic movie would come up with. Like, <laughs> yeah, what if we did like, you know, like Asian movie or whatever... <laughs> <laughs> and it's real. It's fucking real. It's fucking real. <laughs> but uh, no, the the what he wants in this movie, what he wants to be in this movie is Edgar Wright. And uh, man, oh man, uh, even if you don't like Edgar Wright, watching someone trying and failing to be Edgar Wright is, I think, one of the most painful things in the world. Like it goes like root canal, uh, boiling water on your head, <laughs> watching a bad Edgar Wright imitation. <laughs> Yeah, everyone wants to be him. Everyone who, you know, goes to fucking film school wants to be Edgar Wright. And um, they shouldn't be because, first of all, he very famously, I think, did not go to film school. I think that's one of his yeah. main main things. So if you're there, you've the already respectable failed. respectable thing about him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, honestly, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, like, you know, for all, say what you will about the guy, but he puts meticulous fucking care into, like, every frame of those movies. Um, oh, they're 100%. Not, they're not all good, but he those are like high effort movies and every all of his imitators are very low effort. They're all like, yeah. well, what if we did just oh, did we like just a bunch did... of whip pans and like maybe some on-screen text and then we'll be okay. Yeah, like I'm I think Edgar Wright might have edited one of his movies to a metronome. Like he <laughs> he goes really really hard in his fucking visual style and it is he is one of the most high effort directors currently out there, which again, like him or not, he puts in the elbow grease to make these fucking clockwork contraptions, whereas all these guys just want, like, the stylistic ticks, basically. Mm-hmm. In many ways, he is the fucking Tarantino of the 2010s because he's this director who, you know, kind of breaks out of the gates with this 
beloved, acclaimed style that makes a huge impact on aspiring directors and film students. And then they all try and copy what made him famous, but don't have any of like the technique to back it up. So you've got two types of ripoffs folded into each other on this movie, which is honestly, <laughs> honestly is like kind of fascinating. It's, it's like you, you get to see two generations of film school bullshit stacked onto each other here. Yeah. Um, interestingly as well, and just in terms of that timeline, this movie was announced in 2011, like pre-Chronicle. Um, this was like one of the first scripts he actually, actually sold. Um, and it's funny because like, it, this is like, you know, maybe me, him, her is a little less consequential. Like I, I watched Mr. Right on actual Netflix at least. Um, but Miss, like Mr. Right didn't even really get a theatrical release. It played in like 30 theaters for like a week and made about $30,000 total. Yep. Like this is it, this, you know, did not do well. Forgettable, yeah, no. uh, forgotten note. It's a it's a very very close to being a direct to vod movie basically. Yeah. And if it came out 5 years later, it would have been perfect as that. But uh yeah. No, the plot of this movie is very inconsequential. Like again, it's got the you know, 500 Days of Summer, like, oh, the, you know, the kind of quirky love story thing going on here. And again, 500 Days of Summer, another fucking movie that, you know, film people were, or film students were obsessed with at the time. And the only really clever idea it has in the romantic angle, and it is a genuinely, like, why didn't people do this before thing, but I... <laughs> still is that uh whenever she asks him whenever she asks sam rockwell what he does for a living or what he does he always just straight up tells her the truth like he always just says like oh i'm a contract killer i kill people there's a scene where he has to step outside to kill someone in the parking lot then he comes back in she was like what took you so long he's like oh i just killed someone in the parking lot and she thinks he's joking that's a pretty clever twist on this really tired format honestly it's honestly kind of funny but that's really the only like unique pivot they have within this genre. Yeah, there's a little. T- I mean, if if they had just sort of stuck to that bit and developed it a little more, I, I think it would have been nice. I think like they drop it so quickly because like less than halfway through the movie, she figures out that he's telling the like he's telling the truth about it, and they sort yeah. of like they get to the punchline too quickly, basically, where she's like, I I, yeah. I thought he was just kidding when he said he was <laughs> killing people every five minutes. Um, and there's just so much of this fucking, like, this crime family that's, like, has this, this complicated plot to trick him into killing, I, I don't, I could not even fucking follow what they were trying to do, to be honest, and it takes up so much of the movie. It is, it is funny that they have, like, this whole complicated like uh triangle of intrigue in the middle of this 90 minute movie like okay the twist on sam rockwell's character which they they don't really make clear until the very end is that he's a hitman but he doesn't want to be a hitman anymore so the way he does that is he still takes jobs as a hitman but when he does it he kills the people who hired them that's that's like the twist on his character and what the the family does is they realize this about him so they try and convince someone they want to kill into hiring him, into hiring Sam Rockwell, but it spirals out of control because Sam Rockwell, I think, kills the wrong person or maybe actually starts killing people again. And then it's like a whole back and forth. There, you you kind of need like a fucking primer map to disentangle 
the plot of this movie, which is a 90 minute movie where Sam Rockwell says, come on, who shoots cake? (laughs) Uh, I also thought it was funny uh, that this crime family is kind of just like um, they're called like the, the Pirello family. Like they're just kind of like not even generically Italian, just sort of like generically guys from Brooklyn. But the movie, <laughs> the movie does take place allegedly in New Orleans, which is like, <laughs> this is the New Orleans crime family. They're just like sort of five vaguely Italian looking white guys. Yeah, no, they should, they should have had a Cajun crime family there. That would have been cool. Yeah. They that would have been just, cool. They should have had the, the, the fat guy in the white suit from that Simpsons episode. Yeah, no, hundred percent. No, it would have been tight if they had the entire cast of Southern Comfort doing fucking <laughs> Cajun accents, talking about the Sam Rockwell. Um, also in this movie, as a uh, as a because this movie needs two antagonists, is a another hitman from uh, Sam Rockwell's guild that pretends to be a police officer, played by the man himself, Tim Roth, mm-hmm. uh, who you know made his own bones by being in Tarantino movies. So they like, you know, they went back to the source for this one and that's honestly pretty depressing. (laughs) Yeah. Tim Roth, you know, he always brings it. He's always, he's kind of always good and he's always doing this Tim Roth. He doesn't bring it. He doesn't bring it for his American accent. (laughs) Well, I mean, no, he seems very tired of this film. It seems every, every time he's on screen, it seems like they just asked him to do a hundred takes in a row. And he's just sort of like, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it it's funny because in um in you know in Reservoir Dogs he does an American accent and it's very it's a really good American accent. Whereas in this one, like he has to do a Southern accent on top of that, and it it sounds like the most tortured fucking thing you've ever heard. It's like I uh, recommend that I uh, <laughs> might. Well, I'm gonna kill people. Yeah, it's very. A very like watered down and exhausted, and it's clear he did not fucking care at all. This is a pure fucking paycheck gig, but it is still sad to see that he is, you know, he has been forced to star in like he is forced to star in his own ripoffs, basically. Yeah, it's um oh how the mighty have fallen. I saw him doing some great, very weird work in a movie called Resurrection this year. Yeah, I mean, he was in the the Funny Games remake, too. And I kind of cracked myself up imagining, like, Funny Games shit happening to him in this movie also. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, boy. Oh, I think the reason why I said that this was a lot like 500 Days of Summer in terms of the romance stuff is because the meet-cute moment, which is, I think, the most rancid moment in the entire movie, really. The meet-cute moment between Sam Rockwell and uh, Anna Kendrick (laughs) is set by them knocking into each other knocking into a condom display and the boxes of condoms come like raining down. And that, that really is, I think the best encapsulation of Sam of, of uh, Max Landis that we've been able to get all season is that it's yeah. this tired bullshit that people in Hollywood have been doing for 30 years that more clever people have been doing, but this like, you know, frat guy nerd vulgarity gets added on top of it. Like, it's like, well, what if we did something where, in a movie, like in a normal Hitman movie, it would be like flowers or doves or something like, you know, kind of poetic and beautiful that would that would sort of contrast about the ugliness of what is going on. And here it's just condoms. It's just yeah. condoms. And it, 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 that's that, I think, is the closest we're going to get to really 
pinning down what Max Landis is. He's a he's a dumb frat boy who you know gets to make the bad movies that every dumb frat boy wants to make. And yeah. he has the same sense of humor and the same intelligence and the same emotional depth. And at the end of the day, what all of these guys would make is just like gross point blank, but dumber and with dick jokes. That is, I think, spot on. That is, yep. if we've revealed anything about Max Landis, I think it's that. It is his like, you know, creative bankruptcy combined with this like juvenile vulgarity. Yes. And it's not even particularly specific in either one of those like you know other other directors with like a juvenilia or like other directors who do knockoffs like you can identify stamps within that like you know you could say let's take a let me take a director who steals wholesale from other directors i don't know like um let's go with the most uh potentially audience irritating example i can go for here and say brian de palma uh, Brian De Palma, he loves ripping off Alfred Hitchcock. He'd be the first to admit that, so no one's allowed to get mad at me. But even mm-hmm. within his, you know, Hitchcock cribbing, you can kind of identify his own, what separates him, even as he steals from Hitchcock completely. His, he's got his own take on voyeurism and self-reflexivity. He's, he's, what separates him from Hitchcock is there's almost this layer of winking artifice that Hitchcock only very rarely uh, indulged in. I'm, I'm obviously botching this a little bit, but work with me here. It's, it's a very like kind of oversimplification where Max, as he cribs from a whole host of different people, from Tarantino to uh, comic books, to Edgar Wright, to, you know, basically every, every 80s movie ever made, basically everything that's huge with like the screen junkies demographic. Um, there's nothing really unique about his worldview to separate him from all these people aside from the immaturity. And even within the immaturity, it's not like he has like a funny foot fetish or something. He just has a dumb, you know, moron crack.com writer sense of humor. Yeah. And it's not, yeah, there's no there's no specificity in terms of like, it's not even dick jokes. It's just sort of this more like ambient, vague, like the sex joke. The idea that just yes. like the concept of anyone having sex is really funny. Um, yeah. Like that's what the condom joke is about. Basically, it's like, uh, wouldn't it be funny if there was the implication of sex in this scene of two people romantically meeting? Um, mm. It's yeah, it is. It is I don't, like, I don't even know. I guess it is like that frat boy thing of like the most novel and interesting and hysterical thing you can possibly think of at any given time is having sex. Some of the, my most hated directors, like you couldn't really take them for anyone else. Esther, who's a director that you absolutely fucking despise? Director that I despise? Yeah, I'm, <sighs> I'm out of names. Um, I, I like one or two of his movies, but I guess Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Okay, Ridley Scott. Um, even in Ridley Scott's really bad movies, I mm-hmm. feel like you, no one but Ridley Scott could have made a lot of them. I mean, Ridley Scott did also make a bunch of bullshit paycheck movies, but yeah. <laughs> in, in the, in the ones like in the famous ones, especially it, it's really only him that could have made this. Whereas you swap out Max Landis for any other dumb frat boy, rich kid piece of shit. And you'd get like almost no difference. You'd get no yeah. real 
anyone who's at the same cross section of a frat boy, you know, sex obsession and, you know, nerd culture immaturity as him, which was a lot of fucking people at the time, you'd get pretty much the exact same results. And which is insane given his upbringing. But there's just so little in his mind. There's just so, so yeah. he's a, he is a complete husk of a person. Or hell, the obvious example we should have gotten with this fucking Doug, because as we've said <laughs> so many times before, Doug Walker is the only person who would make To Boldly Flee. He is mm-hmm. the only person who would make Demo Reel. He is the only person who would make that scene in the Sailor Moon review where his penis talks to him. And it's evil. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. I never want to see any of that shit again. But it's 100% Doug. There's no one like him. And there never will be another Doug Walker. Yeah. Where Max Landis, every fucking nepotism case in Hollywood is this fucking kid and he's the only one that's good enough at pitching and the only one whose dad was famous enough even among a world full of famous people that he gets to do this and it's just so I don't know maybe one of these other movies like Bright or Victor Frankenstein will really like serve as the Rosetta Stone but the more and more we dig down it's like that profile that came about fucking Mitch McConnell a man who was equally evil it's just uh, the more and more you dig, the more you look for the person underneath it all, you realize that he isn't there and probably never was. Yeah, which makes it so like hard to wrap your head around why he became such like a, a an instant like lightning bolt in Hollywood yes. when he did around the time these movies were getting made and coming out, the ones we've been talking about recently. Like there's nothing particularly special about them, like conceptually even. There's nothing interesting about them. The only thing that's interesting about Max Landis is that his last name is Landis, which is, again, it's like why it's so risible when he talks about like, oh, yeah, like, you know, because everyone is always talking about John Landis movies. Everyone, you know, like that name always gets me in the door. It's like, well, there's nothing else to you. Like, there is nothing else interesting about your work or unique. So, like, why the fuck do you think you keep selling scripts? Because you already know all these people because of who your dad is. It's the only reason why your script got through the door and not the 10 million other scripts exactly like it. Yeah, I mean, it's there's this kind of, like, common knowledge in Hollywood, which is mostly true, and it's that that whenever people accuse someone of being a nepotism case, it's, it's fruitful, it's usually correct to point out that Almost everyone with a career in Hollywood has that career because they knew someone or are related to someone. (laughs) And even within that ecosystem, you know, there is a little bit of a meritocracy. Like there is a little bit of like the cream rising to the top there, unless you're the son of someone super, super famous. Like if you're like Matt Damon's kid or something, like if you're if you're the kid of someone who's like at the top of the A-list, then, yeah, you've got a huge leg up. But you know, if you're if you're just kind of related to some you know director from the '80s or whatever, you're you're you know you're still gonna have to compete with the other nepotism cases. And Max Landis rose to the top of them all, and I really struggle to see why, other than he's just really really good at selling himself. He's yeah. really good at self promotion and branding, which I guess. But like, goddamn, how how? How did we let this happen for so long? I don't know. And it's crazy. What's crazy is especially if you look at the timeline of it, like 2015 is when it all happened. Right. And then he like parlayed all of that into bright and then it all fell apart. Like, you know, he, he, the the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long, I guess. But also like, it, it really does feel like he was just fucking 
after Chronicle hit, just fucking pounding the pavement, sending out scripts, getting at everything he possibly could to squeeze out of it, got a huge Netflix deal, and then it flopped. And then, like, there's just nowhere to go. Or there might have been if the, you know, cancel stuff hadn't happened. Um, yeah. And he even got what a movie made after that. He got the fucking Shadow yeah. in the Cloud that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it, it would be really funny if things turned out, like, the exact same way if he didn't get canceled. Like, if Bright <laughs> was just that bad, that it just tanked yeah. his career for good. But that's the thing. But, like, he could have survived Bright. None of these four movies were well-received that came out in 2015. No. God, you know? no. And they were seen by even less people. Like, Bright had the whole Morbius thing going on where people watched it as a joke. Like, yeah. you know, that movie at least made a splash. People still kind of remember Bright, honestly, which, as far as bad movies go, is kind of rare. Yeah. Whereas, like, it, you know, these movies all just got dumped unceremoniously into the worst theater in New York City <laughs> alongside every fucking four-walled piece of shit and then disappeared. Yeah. And he churned out so fucking many of them. And he, ah, oh man, it, it's, God, that's so difficult to just get a hold on and what this guy's deal is because he's just not a human being at all. Yeah. It's he he is, you know, like I because of the fucking personality disorders he has that gets getting a fix on what his personality is, is, I think, really challenging, especially when you're yeah. just trying to do it from his work. Like, of course, he's just fucking yeah. like taking bits and pieces from everything he's ever seen before and just like repurposing them into his own work. Like there is no there is no fucking Max Landis, um, except for like the psychopathy of him, which I think we can say is wholly his own. Yes. No, 100%. Um, other things in this movie. Uh, <laughs> let's see. There's way too many climaxes. Uh, it's got the mm -hmm. same um, same problem a lot of Hollywood movies do. This this really became like fucking endemic around the time of Marvel where uh, where they have like a climax and then they have like another one almost as like an epilogue stacked on top of that because if they didn't the movie would be 75 minutes long yeah uh it's the similar thing happens it's again it's it's why every movie that's like you know every marvel movie feels interminable is because they have the big showdown with the the big bad's army and then as soon as the um as soon as the army is defeated you think okay we're done here. We got it. But the, the actual big bad gets away. And then there has to be a second confrontation, maybe even a third confrontation if they think they get the big bad. And then the big bad shows up for one last attack or whatever, which yeah. basically happens in this movie. Like you yeah. got the showdown at the at the castle, which they have a they have a running thread through this movie that I've, I can't tell is kind of clever or just condescending with uh, the RZA. RZA is in this movie. And he's yeah. like one of the he's one of the boss's henchmen. And it's kind of a running joke that he's like the only competent one of them. And he just keeps getting fucked over by the upper brass of this crime family. Like he, they give him a shotgun that doesn't work and then he fails and he gets so fed up with it that he eventually just lets, um, he eventually just lets uh, the main character like Sam Rockwell go because he's like, I'm tired of working for these people. You're, you're cooler. I'm just going to let you go. And I, I can't tell if that's not a clever little twist on the, like, you know, the trope of the fucking, you know the the like uh, some of the tropes involving like henchmen that you see in these movies or if it is uh just kind of condescending because Riza is the only black person in this movie basically that is i think the i think the latter is more how i read it um i i think absolutely there is like yeah um i and i think it's it is unfortunate that he was uh 
in this movie at all, <laughs> frankly. You know, yeah. although, you yeah. know, he fucking loves being in like extremely lowbrow action movies or participating in them in some way. So I'm sure he had yeah. a good time. No, he he loves being in movies called like Kung Fu Badass or whatever. That aren't even like, like lowbrow. They're like wannabe lowbrow movies, like yeah. you know Black Dynamite or whatever. Like they're made by guys who's like, what? Wouldn't it be awesome if you made a movie about killing zombies that was self aware of how bad it was? <laughs> that would be epic. Rizzo yeah. loves being in those fucking movies. Um, no, what you were saying about the the multiple climaxes thing is totally true though. And I know we've talked about this on the show before, but like. Um, like movies didn't used to have to end five times. Like I watched, yeah. um, I watched Blackula the other day. Um, spoiler alert for the film Blackula. At the end of the movie, he just Blackula just like dies and turns into a skeleton, and then they just roll the credits over the shot yeah. of his body. Like it just no, it just stops. Like when the final fight is over, it's over. And I feel like just... as movies developed, they just like uh, had to like stack more and more shit on top of this you know the narrative to like keep topping itself and it just like it's fucking interminable it's endless this movie has like three final fight scenes in a row yeah i mean it's very gratifying when the movie uh dragon in does this like all the heroes team up they kill the bad guy and like almost on the minute that they fucking <laughs> have the yes. killing blow it just like the end credits yeah. roll it, goodbye it's, it's very <laughs> yeah I mean, it's perfect. Movies need to do that more. Absolutely. I, I miss <laughs> like, it. Now we've got post-credit scenes, too, which are, like, the worst. Like, I am a, still a full tilt, like, a Scorsese was right guy when it comes to post-credit scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I cannot think of anything more unendurably annoying than a movie being over. You get up, you're ready to leave, and then your fucking friends are like, oh, we got to stay through the credits to watch the teaser for the, the blah, blah, too, or whatever. Like... Ah, God, it's it's the one thing that I'm like, I'm still kind of a holdout on. Let a movie end when it needs to end. Just, yeah. Ugh. Absolutely fucking painful. <laughs> uh, something that I, I forgot to mention in this, uh, in this when we were talking about the visual style of this movie, which I'll let Esther talk some about it too, but one of the things I wrote in my notes is that this whole movie looks like the Despacito music video. <laughs> just in terms of like color grading and everything. There's some weird use of color in this that I kind of like almost weirdly appreciated, you know, when you think about a movie like American Ultra that looks like fucking nothing. Um, oh, God. Or like most of the other stuff we've had to watch this season. You know, not Chronicle, yeah. obviously, which has a specific look, but like, you know, fucking me, him, me, him or her doesn't look like anything. Yeah. Um, you know, this clearly, I, again, I'm not familiar with uh, Paco Cubezas's work. Uh, I think he's mostly made Spanish films. Um, although I would like, I am going to go seek out Spanish movie because I want to see what that's yeah. all about. Um, but no, it's clearly like, this is a guy, like I think a lot of guys, I think there were just like 10 Spanish guys in the 2000s who made a horror movie that was called like The Disappeared. And then they all got to make one American movie that nobody saw. And then they just went back yeah. to making Spanish movies. Which which was a which was a better thing that happened then in the early two thousands when there would be a Japanese guy that made a movie called like uh, Curse and then <laughs> they'd get a chance the movie would like get like basically shelved in the U S so pe- like Harvey Weinstein could remake it which is what yeah. happened so many times mm-hmm. although that did get one really good movie made but you know but most of the time it was just <laughs> like a one missed call type situation yeah <laughs> it was even more disrespectful. Than getting, you know, some guy who who made a Spanish horror movie to direct 
some nepotism cases fucking project. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there is some weird color and weird, like, you know, framing shenanigans that happen in this movie. It, it has a more distinct vision attached to it more than anything we've watched uh, this season aside from Chronicle. Like, I think that's what makes this movie kind of watchable, especially in comparison to American Ultra, which is such a terribly directed, underlit fiasco of a movie, is that, like, the director of this movie, even if it isn't a very good job, is, like, a director. Like, he he he, he knows, like, what a camera does and has, like, a vision for his movies that extends even, like, 5% beyond bare functionality, which I, I think is what contributes pretty greatly to this being one of the less painful movies we've had to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, it's hard to get past the Anna Kendrick performance. Oh, God, yeah. Like, that that is that alone is maybe the worst thing in anything we've watched so far this it's season. It's so funny that if Anna Kendrick was replaced by like a fun not even like a great but like a fun female performance that this becomes like an okay movie. Yeah, this this becomes like, like almost a three-star movie if literally if she was good. like it Yeah, if if she was good, like if they had good chemistry to balance off Sam Rockwell, this would be a perfectly fine way to waste an evening. It's just yeah. she alone, through sheer force of anti-charisma, just sinks the entire fucking thing. <laughs> it's it's really a shame. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, Again, it's too bad. Might not even be her fault. I don't know. It, it's, it's difficult to imagine any actress doing this specific type of mania compellingly, but she's certainly not trying her best to make it better either. Yeah. Yeah, not giving it her all. No. I mean, and I don't... Hard to blame her there. Other than that, there was a there was one great or one great line in this uh, where uh, not a great line. There was one wor- noteworthy line in this movie that did crack me up. Where you know, there the she and one of her roommates are talking about the fact that uh, her her like the the guy she's been seeing is a little mysterious. And Anna Kendrick says, oh, I remember when I was young, I had a crush on Lex Luthor, which, you know, smooth, Max. But then uh, her roommate counters is like, this isn't like a sexy Lex Luthor, though. This is more like a sexy ring man. <laughs> <laughs> and then she has a pretty good response, which is, oh, thank you. Kind of funny. A little yeah. funny. <laughs> Gotta give it this- yeah, pre- <laughs> credit where due. This is... But- I think we lied at this a little bit, but this is definitely one of those movies where it's like, you know, up in the air, whether these characters are just supposed to be autistic. Um, I think like, obviously it's a bad movie autism, if that's the case, but the Rain Man reference and some other stuff that happens in this movie where they keep doing like the movie autism thing where they talk about like, well, I like being weird and I like being a little quirky and who wants to be normal. Um, yeah. Again, like plausible, <laughs> plausible deniability. I think it's it's the it is to Rain Man is to autism what this movie is to BPD basically. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's a movie version of a, of a serious uh, serious condition basically. Oh yeah. Imagine yeah. if your BPD girlfriend could catch knives out of the air. That would be so bad. <laughs> it would be over. That's that's it's game I'd over. I'd be afraid for my life. <laughs> I'd have to, I'd just fucking kill myself on the spot. Man. <laughs> Imagine getting fucking samurai stars thrown at you by the PPD girlfriend. <laughs> like I would be dead dead after that. <laughs> that there's no I I would not be there's no way I'd live a week with that, man. Uh 
oh she's the, the BPD um, girlfriend who has like the hitman visit. Like she can hold down R1 and see you through the wall. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> I'm shaking even thinking. About this. Uh, oh, no. Just BPD girlfriend doing like fucking entire hitman levels to me while I'm out shopping or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh god um yeah no she is she is uh the the term you came up with in describing wandavision and midsummer which she's the cluster b girl boss she's yeah a, she's a prototype of the cluster b girl boss mm-hmm. and i think i think sam rockwell's character is a uh, might be autistic i i I, uh, I think it's mostly that he's just like kind of a kind of quirky you know he, he's a little he's like he's got the clown nose and everything he's just a little random yeah, Just a little random, randomed up. He is which random. I think he loves yeah, random humor. Which, in 2015, people thought autism and being random were the same thing, though. So that's that does, exactly yeah. <laughs> that does that does muddy the waters some more. So I don't know. <laughs> I think I think this movie operates at such a specific point in time that it it got perfect plausible deniability onto whether or not it's ableist. So <laughs> who knows. Max Landis movies often do have like a girl with girl roommates type dynamic where one of them is like talking sense and the other one's a little random. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is also like, she's also played by one of those actresses that's in some of these movies where it's like, clearly you were just friends with one of Max's like, you know, uh, cultists and you should, like, she has no yeah, other IMDb victims. credits. Yeah. And that, this is just what she gets. And it's, it's not, a, it's funny enough. In any other movie, it would be the least forgiving role. But here, it's like she's put up against uh, Anna Kendrick, and she comes out completely unscathed because of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this movie also has the same ending as American Ultra, which is why I think I came away with from it thinking very yep. specifically about that. It has the exact same sequel ending bait. scene. Yeah, yeah, in a foreign country. They have the sequel bait in the foreign country yeah. where they have uh, you know the two, the, the couple teaming up to do spy shit. And that's it. And you know, like like with American Ultra, I'm real excited for the sequel. Yeah. I'm real fucking. <laughs> it's so funny to do a uh, failed sequel bait in a movie that made thirty five thousand dollars at the box office. Like, man, it didn't even yeah. get a chance. It did not even get yeah. a chance to get a sequel. Not even close. No, oh, no way, man. It, it's I think it's almost like a Pavlovian. Like it's like a reflex for Max Landis. Like every single movie he does. He thinks it's like a screenwriting rule. Like he thinks the sequel <laughs> bait is as important as like the third act or the like, you know, climbing action or whatever. Like he, he thinks he thinks that's just like an important part of screenwriting because like everything he watches has sequel bait in it. So it's like, oh, if I'm writing a rom-com, you got to put the sequel bait in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Other than that, um, yeah, this is a very, I don't know, it's an unremarkable movie. It reminds me a lot of when I was like 16, 15, 16 years old, and all the movies I watched were movies I rented at a local library in a small town in Colorado, where I watched DVDs on my parents' laptop. And because it was a, you know, a library, all the movies I could rent there were shit like premium rush and grand piano like these yes immediately forgotten 2010s movies <laughs> and it, it it feels like one of those it, if anything i probably was too nice to this movie because it took me back a little bit it felt like mm-hmm. i was back watching a movie on my parents macbook 
And yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if if I had been if this had been the kind of movie I watched when I was a teenager, I would have given it like three stars. I was when I was fifteen, I was too busy going to the library and renting like Seven Samurai. And now, yeah. now that I'm twenty eight, this is the kind of movie that I watch. Yeah, I mean, same. My my Seven Samurai phase came like two years later when I was like, hey, maybe yeah. I should like start watching movies made before 2011. <laughs> that was obviously that was obviously a good thing, but I, I still feel a pang. Like, I feel like a part of me is lost now that I don't obsessively watch every like, you know, gimmick thriller that came out. Like, I, I was always on my fucking gimmick thriller bullshit back then, and I still like feel like a, I'm, I'm still a little curious whenever a movie called like a staircase comes out starring yes. one weirdly famous actor like and <laughs> 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm always down to watch some uh, three star movie called, um, you know, uh, um, Street Corner. That is, a, that is about <laughs> that is a, just a thriller. Oh, it's boy. The Composer. The Composer. Yes. Something like that. Something like that. And it's about like a composer who has to compose a symphony or die. Yes. And it has, <laughs> yeah, 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, three-star rating by Roger Ebert just before he died. Yeah. They were lowering it into the coffin as he wrote the yeah. review. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the machine was slowly like beeping slower and slower as he tidied <laughs> up a review for that movie. <laughs> it's so pimp that Roger Ebert's last review was the spectacular now. Yes. That's like, a, that's like the perfect, like genuinely, that is like the perfect button on his career. Yeah. Like not some instant classic, not some beloved movie, just some completely forgotten movie that Roger Ebert absolutely flipped for. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think that's about it. I think we've gone for 55 odd minutes, which is uh, as much as I have to say about this. It's, it's not yeah. a terribly interesting movie and it's, Getting kind of maddening how little we know about Max Landis at this point. <laughs> He's becoming more and more of a cipher. Yeah. It, it's, 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 I really hope that one of the big ones like Bright or Victor Frankenstein or the Carly Rae Jepsen screen makes it clear what person he actually is because <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's just getting less and less. He's getting less interesting. He's just yeah. like he's just disappearing more and more to the background, and what we're left with is left. Uh, what we're left with is this string of forgotten 2010s movies. And you know me, I love fucking talking about forget forgotten 2010s movies. That's my bread and butter. But you know, <laughs> as time goes on, just getting an auteur stamp on him feels just harder and harder and harder. So I don't know. We'll see we'll where see. that goes. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it, folks. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Get Cynical. If you like our show, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Um, go to patreon.com slash TGOFV. That's the name of the sister show that I do with my friends Ty and Andy. The most recent episode we did was uh, a actually pretty positive episode on Mystery Guitar Man's movie, Arctic. It was a lot of fun to talk about. Mm -hmm. And you also get access to all of our old bonus episodes, as well as every those good old-fashioned values bonus episode, which, again, Esther's been on a bunch of those. So even more content for you all. And I hope you all enjoyed. Uh, next week, we're back, on, we're back on the Patreon, and we're going to be talking about a horror movie that got its start on YouTube. And it's going to be real fun to make fun of. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's get an ableist in here. All right. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.